In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Canarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, and because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw him, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word. Well, welcome this morning. My name's Jim Davis. I'm one of the pastors here. If you come regularly, you might have seen me do announcements. Normally, J.D. preaches, but every now and then they give me a go, and I'm thankful for it. We are finishing our series in Jeremiah, and it's been a great series, but today we get to do something that excites me. You heard J.D. say earlier he did not grow up. In a, in a church tradition that celebrated Advent, I did. So for me, this brings back a lot of fun memories, uh, brings back a lot of excitement, and uh, it makes me think of Christmas. And I don't know where y'all are on the Christmas decoration spectrum. I- I'm realizing more and more there are a whole lot of different philosophies out there on decorating. I came from a philosophy growing up where you would put some minimal decorations up maybe the week before, and in my home they were known to come down Christmas afternoon. <laughs> And I'm married into a very different philosophy of decoration. It's a great philosophy. It's just different. My wife operates on the philosophy of you you figure out how long a tree can physically live out of the ground. Then you go to January 1, work backward, and that's when you decorate. (laughs) They're both good philosophies, just, just different. But wherever you are, if you're in this culture, my hunch is somewhere in your decorating plan, there's probably a nativity scene. It could be a picture, it could be an ornament, it could be an actual figurine set, you know, full of barn animals and three wise men that likely didn't even come for a long time later. (laughs) My favorite Advent set is the Anglo Advent set. I don't know if you've seen this where everybody's white, everybody's blonde hair, blue eyes. Well, if you don't know this... um, Probably there were no white people in Bethlehem at this time. I heard one pastor say to find a white person in Bethlehem would be kind of like finding Bigfoot riding on a unicorn. They just weren't there. 
But my kids have fun playing with the set nonetheless, and I try to explain. It's not perfectly historically accurate. Angela and I had a uh, really awkward experience with the nativity scene in Italy. We used to live in Italy, and, and we had uh, a moment where we realized Protestant Christians over there largely don't celebrate Christmas. They view it as a pagan Roman, a pagan European uh, festival that worshipped the only tree that managed to stay green in the winter. And they, they say, well, the Catholic Church, they just, they just called it Jesus' birthday and made it okay, which history would be on their side. We just do different things with that history. So that, that, I'm not saying they're right or wrong. It's just, it's just different. So she walked into our decorated apartment and saw a big Christmas tree. And we got a very stout, Mamma Mia, you have a Christmas tree. I wasn't expecting this of you. And I was like, yeah, we, we have a Christmas tree. Is, is that not all right? And she said, well, I mean, I guess you can have a Christmas tree. You just want to make really sure you don't have a nativity scene. And perfectly on cue, my wife goes, you mean like that? There's a lot of interesting things about the nativity tradition for me. And wherever you live, whatever your, your view is, even politically, this has become a focal point in a lot of politics around, around the United States right now. But the interesting thing to me is how much the nativity scene has become the focal point. That was not how it was meant to be. Luke is not wrapping up his gospel with the nativity scene. He's beginning it. The nativity scene is meant to point towards something else. To, to focus on the nativity scene, it's kind of like when my kids are real little and I'm pointing at something and they're looking at my finger. <laughs> no, the finger's pointing to something. Look over there. And so when we focus too heavily on the nativity scene, we can forget what it is it's pointing towards. So this morning, we are in the text from which we get our nativity scene. And I want to look at what it's pointing towards. And I want to do that by answering three simple questions. I want to look at who was it who, that was born. What did he accomplish, and what does he want from us now? Who was born, what did he accomplish, and what does he want from us now? All right, who was born? A Savior was born. A Savior was born. And we did not, in Jesus' birth, merely get a very good man. We didn't even merely get a prophet. And we didn't only get the most influential human being who has ever lived on this earth. And there's no historian that would argue that. Jesus is the most influential person who has ever walked this earth. But we still got something much more than that the day that he was born. We got a savior. And I love the way that Luke opens up his gospel. Luke is a doctor by trade, a medical doctor. He's a historian, and he has lots of details that... On first reading, we probably can't appreciate. But he's doing at least two things in giving us all these details. First, he's showing us this is a real place. Look, you can go and check history. You can go with archaeologists and you can see this is a real place. These are real people. We are not in Middle Earth here. This is not Narnia. He's not opening up with once upon a time. He is saying in this town of Bethlehem, while this guy, Quirinius, was governor, and he was reporting to the greatest emperor that had ever ruled the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, this is what's going on in this time. This real person, Jesus, was born. You can go check. That's, what he's, that's the first thing he's doing with these details. But he's doing something else as well. He is comparing and contrasting the two most important people Luke can think of who were making very similar claims. Caesar, Augustus, and Jesus Christ were making some very similar claims. 
So Caesar Augustus, some of you know he was emperor of the Roman Empire. He claimed emperor, king, and lord. Those were titles he embraced. His adopted father, Julius Caesar, claimed to be God himself. So Augustus Caesar then claimed to be son of a god. Son of a god. Son of the divine. The emperor Augustus also claimed the term Pontifus Maximus. If you know Latin, you know that means high priest. And if you have read the book of Hebrews or been coming to Theology Thursday, you know that high priest is the office that Jesus took on when he resurrected. So we're seeing two very important people taking on some very similar claims. And during Caesar Augustus's reign, things got so good. Travel, commerce, safety got so good that the Romans began to call him their savior. And in the east part of the empire, they would actually worship him. And Luke is writing this, knowing that at the end of his gospel, this Jesus would stand face to face with Caesar Augustus's authority in that region, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius would ask him, are you the king? Are you God? Are you the son of God? He knows that's where he's going, and he's beginning this contrast of two saviors. Now, likely, Caesar Augustus never heard the name of Jesus, probably. But within one generation, the Caesars were devoting incredible resources to obliterate these people because they claimed Jesus as Lord and not the Caesars. And there's something else happening that that we can't overlook It isn't like Jesus just barely wins by a slim vote that he's Savior and Augustus isn't. It isn't like due to certain circumstances, you know, things were written down about Jesus and we still talk about him and not Augustus. No, I I know somebody who said there there is a reason that we name our children Peter, Paul, Mark, and Luke and our dogs Caesar and Nero. There is a reason that this happened. And and it's not just that God barely won, but God used everything that Caesar Augustus did to fuel Jesus' claims. Okay, So I don't know if you've ever wrestled with somebody who's well below you, that's much weaker than you. I do all the time at my house with my three little kids. I'm going to enjoy being the stronger one while I can. But sometimes I may have been known to take their fist and hit them with it. (laughs) Then taunt them and tell them to stop hitting themselves. They can't do anything about it. They're hitting themselves. And this is kind of the picture that we have because God doesn't just beat Caesar Augustus. Jesus doesn't just win. He uses him. He uses everything that Caesar's done to fuel his claim. So how? Well, Caesar Augustus, if you've ever heard of the, the, the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, that came from him. He established the most extensive work uh, system of roadways from Rome to everywhere in the empire. And it was these roads that allowed Jesus to travel and his followers to go to the far reaches of the empire and tell them of the Savior who was born. You might have heard of the term Pax Romana, Roman peace. This is from Caesar Augustus. There was unprecedented peace in the Roman Empire that allowed for security on these travels. They weren't worried about being robbed on their way of going to and from. They could travel these roads with relative peace because of Caesar Augustus. So what he's doing is fueling Jesus' ministry. And now that you had travel and security, you had trade. 
And so with the businessmen, they needed a common language, and they had a common language in Greek. So you can see everything that Caesar is accomplishing ends up fueling the spread of Christianity, working against Caesar's claims and promoting Jesus's. And then in a moment of pure providence, Caesar decides that he is going to have a census. He wants to see how big his empire is. He wants to glory in his greatness. And because of that census, this family in Nazareth, they're forced to go over to Bethlehem where they will have their child. Otherwise, it would have been in Nazareth. But they have their child in Bethlehem. Why is this important? It's important because this was prophesied. This is what Martin and Stephanie were reading from Micah. It was predicted, it was prophesied that the Savior would be of Nazareth and it would be born in Bethlehem. This is our God. This is our God who uses everything for his own good and his own glory, regardless of whether our intentions are working for him or against him. They will go to work for him. Whatever we want, whatever our, no matter what our intentions are, God is in control even when our finances aren't. God is in control even when our relationships are out of control. God is in control even when our health is out of control. And God is in control when we continually, habitually rebel against him. It doesn't matter how bad, it doesn't matter how often, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances or how bleak the scenario looks, he promises us a savior. Everybody. Doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter where we come from, doesn't matter who we are. He promises us good, and he promises us a savior. The problem is that we don't always see our need for saving. We don't always see our need for saving. And I'm, I'm talking mostly to Christians here. Christians who I don't think would, would object, at least intellectually, that we need saving. Now, there may be some of you in the audience who you really are wrestling with, do I need saving? Is Jesus that Savior? And if that's you, even though I'm not going to really speak to that right now, I would like to just ask you, there is... Almost nothing. I would like to do more than to take you to lunch or have coffee with you. So if you're really thinking through, I'm not sure if I need saving and I'm not sure if Jesus is it, just on that tariff tab, would you write lunch with Jim or something like that? I will call you Monday and I want to hear your thoughts and I want to hear your concerns. But I think the majority of the people in this room would at least verbally affirm our need of a savior. But the reality is that in a relatively young church, which is what we are, with very little life experience, largely, in the 21st century in America, we don't feel our need for a Savior the way that most of humanity has had the opportunity to. We don't suffer from physical ailments the way that most of humanity has and, and continues to do. We don't see our fallen state in our bodies the way that most of the rest of the world always has had to. And I'm thankful for that, but we need to realize we don't. We don't see the fallenness of mankind in the world around us. We don't pray for rain, knowing that if we don't get it, our children might not eat. We, we generally don't experience that kind of need for a Savior. And on top of that, we have so many distractions. We have extra money to play with. 
You realize what a bit, what, like how odd that is in the history of humanity? We've got extra money to play with. I think everybody probably in this room, to some degree, has extra money to play with. And on top of that, we've got time to play with, and we fill that empty time with things. And they're not all bad things, but we have to rep- remember, we fill our time with things like athletics and movies and games and social media, apps, whatever it is that we look at, we, we fill our, our time with these things. And do you know why Jesus, what well, Mary and Joseph and then Jesus had no place to stay? It wasn't because Bethlehem rejected them. It wasn't because they didn't believe in God. And it wasn't because they didn't know the scripture. It was because they were too busy. The people in Bethlehem, they knew the scripture. They knew the Savior would come from Nazareth. He would be born in their town. When is that more likely than a census, if, you're, if you have time to think about it? They knew he'd be of the line of David, so they could narrow it down there. And they knew he would be born of a virgin. But nobody was looking for him because they were too busy. They were busy reuniting with family. They were busy being a part of the census, overseeing the census, meeting new people. They were busy, and they were not necessarily busy with bad things, but they were so busy that they didn't see the Savior when he was born. And my concern is that all of us, me certainly, we are in a similar state now. We're comfortable and we're busy. Now, I'm thankful for comfort. I'm not wanting a really hard life. Uh, And it's good to be busy. We don't want to be idle. But when those things come in such abundance, we need to realize that it can dull our our natural longing and realization and desire for saving. It can, in a very real way, stifle our relationship with our Savior the less we realize we need saving. And I know I I see this in my own life. When I moved to Italy for the first time in 2003... It was, it was really like a different world back then. Like we didn't have Vonage, we didn't have Skype, we didn't have smartphones. There was nothing to do electronically if you weren't in front of a computer. And even then it was very slow. And so I, on top of that, I had to walk everywhere in, in Pisa. So I had a phone that didn't do a lot. And frankly, nobody really wanted to call and talk to me. And I was walking everywhere. And life just worked out in such a way where I found myself with empty time that when, nothing, when I had nothing else to do, I began to pray a lot more and meditate on what I read that morning a lot more and memorize scripture a lot more. Well, fast forward, I move back here. Technology's changing rapidly. I don't have that time anymore. It doesn't just happen anymore. And honestly, when I get a little bit of that kind of time, I'm so frequently Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tomahawk Nation, ESPN. I mean, I'm quickly trying to fill that time with things that really aren't going to fuel my relationship with the Lord. So, out of a desire, probably just not to feel like I'm the worst person in Oxford, I sat at an intersection, a busy intersection in Oxford, and I watched. And I watched when people got to a a, a busy red light, how many people just sat. How many didn't get on their phone and just start filling that busy time with something? And you know what? I sat there a while, and I never saw a single person, a single person come to that stoplight and not pick up their phone. I'm not saying they're they're all in sin for it. I'm just saying, like, this is something I think we're all dealing with because we're going to need to fight for that time in our culture to be with our Lord and to see our need for a Savior. 
this kind of busyness affects us. It affects us in lots of ways, but there's one specific way I want to point out. It affects us when we don't fight for that time with our Lord, when we less and less see our need for saving, when something actually difficult comes into our life, when something hard happens, something bad happens, we are going to be more prone to look at ourselves as the victim rather than the culprit. The victim of a fallen world, not the culprit of a fallen world. There's a very big difference because a victim and a, and a culprit are going to respond very differently. A victim is going to look at God in a hard time and say, why have you allowed this to happen to me? How could you do this? How could you possibly have done this and still claim to be good? I'm the victim. But a culprit knows, I did this. I am, I am the cause. I am rebellious. I contributed to the fall of this world. I'm sorry. A culprit repents and begs for a savior. And that morning... Over a little over 2,000 years ago, a Savior was born into a town that was too busy to see their need for saving. So that's who was born. Let's look at what he accomplished. In verse 14, we can let the angels themselves tell us what it is that the Savior would accomplish. The angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. So two things at least are accomplished. Glory to God. God gets glory and peace. And so I want to look at those two things. Glory to God and peace. First, glory to God. God received glory in a Savior coming to the world. And he received glory in two ways. The first is going to be rather obvious. The second might not be so obvious. But the first, God received, the first way God received glory is that he saved people. He saved people. When God saves people, he puts on display his mercy and his grace and his love and his kindness and his patience. And we can see it like this. Imagine knowing Jesus didn't begin to exist that day. He didn't just like not exist and one day was born. Jesus has always existed. So imagine the transition for him, going from king of the universe, highly exalted, constantly praised, in glory, honor, and comfort, to a helpless baby sleeping in a trough. It's a pretty big transition. A lot of the women in this room know what it's like to be pursued by a man. I hear it's a good feeling. And I hear that the more sacrifice involved in the pursuit makes the feeling better. Maybe the guy has to drive a long way to, to see you. Maybe, maybe he spent a lot of money on you, sacrifice there. Maybe he quit smoking cigarettes for you. I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, when there's sacrifice involved, it feels more significant because it helps you realize that you matter. You feel, you realize you matter more when the sacrifice is greater this is the reason we have all these damsel in distress fairy tales that have been around forever. Because we want to be pursued. We want to matter. And we want to think somebody would sacrifice for me. Well, there has been no group of people pursued greater than this church. 
And there has been no pursuer who has sacrificed more than our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this point very clearly in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now in a room this size, my hunch is there are a number of people who feel poor. Whether statistically you are or not, you feel poor. But I don't think anybody's child is sleeping in a feeding trough. But it wasn't just that he gave up riches. It wasn't just that he gave up money. The prophet Isaiah calls Jesus the man of sorrows. He gave up so much more than money to pursue us. And we see this prophesied. We're talking about these prophecies. This is long before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53 says this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So he, he might not have been that press, impressive to even look at. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Why? with the king of the universe. Leave heaven for this. So that he could save us. So that he could come down here and live the life that none of us could ever live. And he was then willing to take on the punishment that we all deserve so that we could be saved. And in doing that, God is glorified because his grace and his mercy and his kindness are displayed in the most glorious way possible. That's the first way he's glorified. The second is this. And the second is going to be a little more uncomfortable. But God is glorified when people reject the Savior. God is glorified when people curse him. How is that possible? He's glorified, but just in a different way. It isn't his kindness and mercy and grace that's on display, but his justice and his wrath that are justly on display to any who deny the Savior and curse God. And that's uncomfortable. And if it, if it is, at some level, I, I'm with you. I get it. But I think we need to look at... We need to look at some false assumptions that we're holding when we do this. My hunch is that you don't actually not like justice. Someone were to break into your house. Someone were to steal your car. Or God forbid, somebody was to kidnap your child you would be screaming for justice. Screaming for justice. And then, Lord willing, if it came, they found your child, your child is fine, the culprit is behind bars, you would be hailing justice, praising God for justice. So why are we so uncomfortable with justice in this area, but so comfortable with justice over here? Because in one scenario, we are see ourselves as the victim. And one scenario... We don't. But we are the victims, and that is what we, we are the culprits, and that is what we deserve. And God is most glorified when he brings justice and wrath where it is needed. So the question for us is how is God going to be glorified in our lives? Is it going to be through his just, justice and wrath being displayed? I pray not. Or will it be 
his grace and love and mercy on display because the justice and wrath that we deserve went to Jesus Christ. And for those who accept that, for those who who believe that we need a Savior and trust in Jesus as that Savior, we get the second accomplishment. We get peace. Now, the old King James Version is... The King James Bible, I'm convinced, is a masterpiece. It is a, a, a scientific and an art masterpiece. It was, it was made by people who were like Newtonian smart. It's just crazy what was given us in the King James Bible. But they are still infallible people, and they got this verse wrong. So the, the real problem is we know the King James verse so well through singing and uh, through Advent series. And the King James, if I remember right, says, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That's, that's probably how we're gonna, it's going to pop up in a lot of minds. But the, no scholar really disagrees anymore. That translation is not perfect because it's too general. It's not specific. What the phrase says is peace on earth among those whom he is, with whom he is pleased. That's who gets the peace. Peace on earth among whom, those with whom he is pleased. So who here pleases God? Who merits God's pleasure? Well, again, we need to think like Luke. And Luke knows that Jesus' baptism is coming down the pipe. He knows that's coming. And at Jesus' baptism, God audibly spoke and said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Only Jesus pleases God. And when we believe in Jesus and accept him as our Savior, God then doesn't see nasty, sinful Jim Davis. He sees Jesus Christ. And I have peace with my maker. No longer are we son no longer are we enemies of God, but we become sons and daughters. And we get peace with our creator because of Jesus Christ. He pleased God, and that's now how we are seen. And this is the peace that Paul was writing about to the Philippian church, a very famous verse. Paul writes, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So remember, Paul was writing from jail. And he was writing to probably the most persecuted church that we know of in that time. And he's writing to address the stress and the anxiety that comes through difficult circumstances. And he's saying that the peace we have with our creator, it should transcend every part of our life. There's no part of our life that that peace should not be affecting and healing. And it is head-turning when we see somebody in our culture have peace that surpasses understanding. They have peace when all worldly logic said there should be no peace. A lot of you have seen people walk towards death with peace. We've seen people give away boatloads of money that don't seem like it's theirs. That they don't seem like they have it to give, yet they do it and they do it with peace. We've seen people bring other people into their homes, in, in, in small homes. I'm talking about a very nice carriage house. I'm talking about putting them in the house with people. And that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem like there should be peace, but there's peace. I remember seeing a family move overseas with their kids to go plant a church with no, no plan on ever coming home. That, that does not equate peace in a worldly understanding, but they were so peaceful. 
They knew that's what the Lord wanted them to do. And that was a peace that surpassed even my understanding at the time. And we have story after story of Christians peacefully walking to their execution to be able to continue to claim Jesus as their Savior. So this part was pretty convicting for me. Some of you know I'm recovering from shingles for the second time in four years. And my doctor, doctors have told me that it comes from stress in my life. And so when that diagnosis came down, my sweet wife told me in a way that only she can, you need to stop being stressed. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I can't just turn it off. I'm sorry. And she, then she followed it up sweetly with, well, you're just not trusting God. <laughs> like that, that kind of stings. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I feel like I should, but it, it stings because she's right. I wasn't trusting God. That peace was not making it to every area of my life. I was getting too busy. I was sitting at red lights, looking at Instagram and Tomahawk Nation, and I'm using a fourth child to justify not getting up and doing what I need to do to be spending time with my Lord. So you know what? I think he sent me shingles to show it, show it to me. Shingles and a really nice, prophetic, truth-speaking wife. <laughs> and I'm thankful but this is what happens. I see it clearly in my own life. I, I, I hope I'm not the only one. I don't think I'm the only one. But the most encouraging part of this, again, goes back to the prophecies. This was prophesied. This was predicted way before Jesus ever came on the scene again here on earth. Isaiah speaks to this piece in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what did our Savior accomplish? He accomplished glory to God and peace for all those who accept the Savior. He doesn't say glory to God for people who have a perfect church attendance. He doesn't say peace to those who give more money on Sundays. He says glory to God and peace through Jesus alone. So if he has done that, if he has lived the life we can't live, there's nothing morally we can do to get closer to perfection or to merit it more. He's done everything. What in the world then is required of us? Everything's been done. What's left? Last point. What is it that he wants from us now? When I was reading this this week, I, I saw something that I'd, I'd never seen before. And I don't know how many times I've heard this story, I've read this story, but I saw something new. Have you ever noticed how much ink Luke uses on the shepherds? I mean, it really is more than it seems warranted upon the first reading. And in this context, shepherds, it's such a different context. We don't know shepherds immediately, but they're not like the most morally righteous group of people. There was an old saying that they frequently confused mine with thine. They were known to be thieves and have sticky fingers and loose morals. So imagine the scene. They're out at night, 
I mean, they might be drinking wine they've stolen. They might be in, in the middle of a dirty joke. And immediately, the darkness cracks open. The angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord comes out. The glory of God is around this angel of the Lord. What do you think would have been the first thought or phrase out of their mouth? I'm not 100% sure what it was, but I'm 99% sure I wouldn't be able to say it from the pulpit. It wouldn't have been good. Their immediate reactions would have been, this is bad. Bad news. Sin, God, going together. This is not going to go well. But then the angel says this. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news. You are caught in your sins. And we are not here for punishment, but to bring you a Savior. Now in this context that we're reading, it's helpful to also know when a baby is born, there would have been a herald hired. Someone to walk around the town and and announce the arrival of this new child. And particularly if it were a male child. And they would have been heralded, depending on the wealth of the family, more or less elaborately. And, and we kind of do the same thing. I mean, when we have babies, generally there's something on the hospital door. There's uh, generally sometimes some announcement made through mailings. And usually now something on social media. I had the, the, the privilege of being able to put something up four weeks ago about our new baby. So we do the same thing. It doesn't cost quite as much. And we can do it a little bit more. But we, we get this idea. And they did the same thing the way they did it, though, is to hire a herald who would walk the street. So with this in mind, let's look at verse 17 and 18. And when they, the shepherds, saw it, the child, they made known the saying that had been told them by the angels concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Do you see what just happened? The shepherds became the heralds. The shepherds became these heralds. And if you're thinking about this, and a lot of people have thought about this and thought, well, that sounds like a pretty crummy herald. This is, I mean, this is the savior of the world. You're going to use these shepherds to announce him? That's like announcing your child through MySpace nowadays. It's, just, it's not the vehicle that you would really want to use to adequately announce the birth of your child. But shepherds is what he chooses to use. And if you think about it, actually does make sense if you're announcing the savior of the world who better than those who everybody would agree probably needed saving the most the shepherds became the heralds and it's the same with us today we are caught in our sins we are caught and we are forgiven through a savior we don't have to do anything no going to church or doing more good deeds or doing less bad things is going to get us closer to salvation. Jesus has done it all. We don't have to do anything, but now we get to do something. We get to be those heralds. We get to herald the news of our Savior to all of our friends and family and co-workers who don't yet know him. And so when we think about heralding our Savior, I have commonly heard two reasons that we don't herald. Two reasons that prevent us from talking about our Savior. And I want to close by addressing these two 
reasons people don't herald. The first is this. Well, what if they ask a question I can't answer? What if they ask a question and I can't answer? And to that, I really lovingly say, so what? (laughs) If they ask a question, you can't answer. God didn't seem too concerned with the academic ability of the shepherds. He He clearly didn't choose them to be heralds because they could explain dinosaurs to people. I mean, God is not concerned with that. To be a herald, you need to know the gospel. And if you are saved, you know the gospel and you're ready. And something else here. There is a really good place in our heralding for the words I don't know. You know, if I'm around somebody for a long time and I don't hear the words I don't know, I begin to trust them less. And I begin to trust them less because I don't see humility. I don't know communicates a level of humility that builds trust. And sometimes I don't know is a lot better than being able to quote Calvin and Luther. It's a lot better than being able to explain the historicity of the apologetics. I don't know sometimes is the best thing that we can say when we herald our Savior because there's a lot that we don't know. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for apologetics or the historicity of the Bible or philosophy. There is, but they're secondary. They're all secondary because they don't save. They remove hurdles, but they don't save. Only the gospel saves. My first two years of you know, full-time vocational ministry was we're at the University of Pisa in Italy, which is like the Harvard of Italy. So I'm not exaggerating. Literally, almost every day, I would have at least one appointment that would end with me saying, I have no idea. Like, not only do I, can I not answer your question, I'm not even smart enough to understand the question. <laughs> I need to first go and understand the question before I can give you an answer. And so I would tell them all that, well, I don't know, but how about I go back and I research and, you know, and we'll get back together for coffee and, and see if I can come up with an answer. And I never once had somebody tell me no. And it always turned into a great second appointment where I could get to know them better. And I, and I could answer their question, remove a hurdle. And I started to learn a whole lot because I was okay with the words, I don't know. So don't worry about being asked questions that you don't have the answer to. If they are secondary, remember they're secondary and we can get you the answers. We've got resources and people, so don't worry about that. But if you're saved, if Jesus is your savior, you're saved because of the gospel, the good news, and you're ready. Second reason I hear often for not heralding the news of our Savior is this. I just don't want it to be awkward. I just don't want it to be awkward. Well, here's my, my uh, wise response. Then don't be awkward. <laughs> there are a lot of ways that you can herald the Savior and not be awkward. We're not asking you to go and preach on the square or have an altar call at the business office. I mean, there are a lot of very normal ways to get to know people, to get to their hearts. And probably the best of these is just to ask somebody, how can I be praying for you? I have stout atheist friends who feel, who have told me, I feel cared for when you ask how you can pray for me because I know you do. And that you would spend that kind of time on me. I can see that you care. And when people tell us how we can be praying for them, generally they're going to tell us some things that are important to them. They're going to tell us things that hurt. And we can't overstate how they feel when we pray for them and go back a week, a month later and say, how's that thing? How's your marriage doing? I've been praying. Is it, is it any better? How's your son doing? I've really been praying for him. 
and not as a tactic. I'm just being genuine. Because people pray generally for things that hurt, and it's in our hurt that we can most clearly see our need for a Savior. So ask them how you can pray for them. That's not awkward. I've been experimenting with a new idea. Tattoos. I'm not getting any. But more and more, when presented with the opportunity to ask somebody about their tattoo, I, I, I try. I ask them, you know, why'd you get that? It's cool, cool-looking tat. <laughs> what? Tell me about it. And I, I'm realizing more and more people, do, outside of like Mike Tyson, people don't just tat themselves with things that don't matter. <laughs> Generally, they're very important things. And I've had the opportunity to to ask them about a tattoo and hear somebody say that it's about a loved one who's not with them anymore. And, and we have the opportunity in those moments to say, man, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. I can't imagine having lost someone so close. That is not the way this world was meant to be. That's not the way it was designed. And it is not hard to get from there to a savior if we're patient and loving and gracious. Another way we can not be awkward and our heralding of our Savior is to, buy, to invite people into our homes. This is something I know J.D. has talked a lot about in his preaching. There's, a, there's an old man in Starkville I used to know, and uh, he would always say, you know, I've just never found it awkward when the gospel comes up after I've cleaned up my whole house and made a nice meal. <laughs> it, it, it's, just, it's, it's not that awkward. And if nothing else, if we pray well, at that table. The gospel is going to be shared. The gospel is going to be clear. And it might set the course of the conversation for the night. But if we're honest, at the end of the day, we're not worried about someone else feeling awkward. We're worried about us feeling awkward. We're worried about us looking uncool. Because the desire for acceptance runs deep in us. And we're going to find it some. We're going to seek it somewhere. But when we can finally be accepted where it matters the most, when we can be accepted by the God of the universe through our Savior, we start not caring about acceptance in these other areas. They don't matter to us as much. We don't pursue them as much. And we become more freed up to enjoy heralding our Savior. So let's pray for this, that we would see our need for saving more, that we would know our Savior better, and that we would be good heralds. Lord, we thank you for this Advent season, and we do pray that it's one that would change us, that we would look back at 2014 Christmas season as one where we understood our need for saving even more as believers and maybe people who don't know Jesus right now. And We pray that that would change us and that we would have the opportunity to be able to herald Jesus as our Lord, Savior, King, High Priest, and God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.